Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. Hey guys, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Ready Yeti membership. We've grown to have thousands of products from some amazing up-and-coming brands. Anything from skis and snowboards, jackets, hiking boots, even supplements and snack bars. It's an incredible way to save a ton on gear with discounts of up to 50% off. Join the Ready Yeti membership and do your part to help support some of these incredible small businesses that aren't just making incredible gear, but are also putting a lot of effort into social action and doing their part to create an environmentally conscious business. Join today at www.readyyeti.com members and start supporting these amazing startups and saving a ton on gear. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, host. In today's episode, I am sitting down uh, with two business owners today, Don Halpern, the founder of Locktote, and Neil Barron, the founder of Lightlock. Guys, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. Hey, thanks for having us. Awesome. Yeah, so this is a more unique podcast episode. Rarely do we have two founders of two uh, businesses on at the same time. Uh, but to start things off, Don, I, I would love for you to share um, for the listener that may not be familiar with Lactote, how would you best describe uh, your, your brand to them? Well, Lactote makes, I guess what I would call ridiculously tough ridiculously practical anti-theft bags. In other words, we make bags that you can just take with you every day as your everyday carry that you can secure your things and you can lock it to anything and know that your things are safe. So while you're doing other things, eating, playing, swimming, doing sports, running, working out, um, gives you peace of mind, lets you live more and worry less. That's really interesting. And, and Neil, you started Lightlock. What what's the background uh, of your your brand? Uh, so we make the uh, at Lightlock we make the world's lightest insurance rated bike and motorbike locks, uh, which we uh, design, develop, and manufacture in the UK and sell globally. Uh, so we try to make products that are um, completely rethinking the whole bike security area, where making things that are easy to use. Um, basically bikes are getting lighter and lighter and locks have been getting heavier and heavier until now. That's really interesting. And for, and for the listener, they might be like, mm, okay, so I understand there's some synergy between security and your two brands, but um, I'd love to ask the two of you, what made you guys decide to partner together? Because for the listener that may not be aware, um, obviously Lightlock and um, Locktoad are, are two different brands, but in the U.S. and Canada, they're they're kind of collaborating um, together. So I'd love uh, maybe um, for Don to start to sort of talk about the partnership that you guys have. And Neil, if you have anything to add in after that, um, that'd be great. I mean, it, it really started for a couple different reasons. I mean, initially, um, which is kind of funny, um, it happened when we just ran out of product. Um, our sales were great. We sold through everything. We got hit by Chinese New Year, and then we got hit by COVID-19, and our manufacturing shut down, and we needed some complementary stuff that we could sell on our, uh, on our e-commerce site. And we were looking for other products that philosophically made sense to sell along with Loctote. Um, other things that, you know, number one, had to be ridiculously tough, had to be really innovative, 
had to be in the, you know, security realm, right? Had to fit, you know, our company's tagline, live more and worry less. I was familiar with Lightlock um, from back in their Kickstarter campaign. They had launched before us. And, uh, you know, I admired their campaign. I admired what they were doing. I loved what they were doing. I was blown away when I saw their original campaign. It was always kind of in my mind, even when I was doing ours and inventing our product, kind of thinking back to these guys that somehow made a bike lock out of materials like nobody had ever seen before. Um, so it made sense to reach out to them. Um, everything about their brand resonated the same kind of values and uh, same kind of, you know, sort of, you know, feel as, as we had. So it was a no brainer to me. Um, you know, it was all about living more and wearing less, being ultra secure, being ridiculously tough, being lightweight. It, it just it just purely made sense. Um, you know, I, I don't know why we didn't do it sooner, to be quite honest with you. And uh, when we reached out to Neil, I, you know, he wasn't familiar with our brand. So, um, you know, hurt my feelings a little bit. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, you know, he, he was he was happy to work with us. So we, we were honored. I, I, I actually can if I can add to that, I, I really love what Loctote stands for and uh, the energy that Don's uh, brought to, to, to the whole area. Um, but also, I really admire things that are simple yet innovative. And it takes a lot of work and effort to make something really simple that benefits a, a, a user, you know, real user centered design. Um, and, I, and I think people look at simple stuff and think, oh, it must be quite easy to do, but it really isn't. That leads me to a great uh, sort of segue. We'll start with you, Neil. How, how did you develop this idea of of Lightlock? You started in 2013 or early, early 2014. Um, what made you come up with the idea, and how difficult was it to really prototype and get it to the point where it is today? Uh, it, there was um, qu there were quite a few things that led to the whole Lightlock idea. Um, the first one was I ran um, a bike innovation. Uh, workshop in the Royal College of Art in London, um, where I do some 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 teaching, where I used to study. Uh, it's a great place, which is very innovative. There's this sort of um, design and engineering meets art and and, and visual design. Um, and one of the things that came out of that was we, the observation that bikes are getting lighter and lighter, and um, locks and other things are getting heavier and heavier. I also had three bikes stolen across quite a, a reasonable period. So I know what it feels like to have your bike stolen, which is really quite, I think, quite important. And that's um, something I think I share with Don as well, uh, personal experience. So, so you really are trying to make something for the customer that you can actually completely empathize with how they might feel. Um, then the other part of the sort of technical thing was that um, there are locks which are um, light and flexible but they might not be very secure uh, like cables for example uh, there are other other locks which are flexible and strong like um, like chains for example but there aren't any locks really that we came along which are light flexible and secure that's what we really stand for in terms of the technical product um, so yeah that's where we come from that's really interesting. Now, did you did you have any background in engineering or, or manufacturing that helped you prototype and build the the light lock? Yeah. So, um, so my background, I've got a, a weird mixed background. So, I studied at university aeronautics and astronautics. I used to work and I got trained by Rolls Royce aircraft engines in the UK. It's quite a while ago now, but a lot of it shaped me 
um, as an inventor and, and uh, engineer and designer. And I then went on to go to art college and study design. So I've ended up with this kind of weird mix of design, engineering, and then also entrepreneurialism. Um, and so I think everything came together for this project. And I feel I do say to people that um, Lightlock basically encompasses everything I've ever done, whether it's brand, whether it's sort of visual design, technical design. In terms of the prototyping question, um, we, I think I estimate we've made around about 3,000 prototypes of, of locks. And um, for me, that is just a constant evolution and exploration of how to make materials work together, um, looking for the lightest, easiest to use thing, but then also something you can manufacture. And it really isn't easy. You don't just go and buy stuff off the shelf. It's kind of like you have to really take risks and really try things and we've got a constant pipeline of r d now with a with a little team um doing some quite ambitious things um which i can't talk about in great detail technically but uh, it's what drives me that's so fascinating and, and and don you you're let's talk about your sort of start with um uh Loctote. How how did things get rolling for you in starting the business um well i mean it all started when my stuff got stolen um, off the beach on a family vacation. I was actually on a family vacation because I had an, another invention I was working on. And uh, I woke up one morning and got on Kickstarter and somebody had launched a better one. Um, and it was way better than the one I was working on. So much better that I killed my project and uh, went into mourning the uh, death of my invention for about six months. And uh, eventually my wife was starting to get worried. And uh, one day she came up and just said, listen, you need to pull your head out of your ass. Let's just go on vacation, you know, kind of get some fresh air. You and, you know, take the kids. And I was on vacation that my stuff got stolen. And uh, I guess that's where I heard the popping sound of my head coming out of my ass when I came up with the idea for a theft-resistant bag. Um, So at that point, you know, I kind of went out started on my computer researching thinking you know anytime anybody i know comes up with a good idea for something the first thing you do is you go online to see if there's one out there right well somebody must have created this thing because i need one and there wasn't anything i mean yeah there were some theft resistant products out there but they weren't very good um so you know first thing is i'm going to invent one and as that's kind of where it started um got back home and first thing i did was buy a roll of Tyvek house wrap and uh, some duct tape and started, you know, cutting out and taping up prototypes and uh, kind of went from there. Once I started getting prototypes, it seemed to make sense. A buddy of mine gave me his grandmother's old sewing machine and, you know, from the 1920s and, you know, I rebuilt it, put it back together, learned how to sew and started sewing up prototypes. And that's kind of how it started. That's really interesting. So you, your background is sort of inventing and creating new products. Has it, has it been that way for a while? Did you, what really got you into the inventing world? Um, attention deficit disorder um, and boredom, probably more than anything else. My background is in business. I mean, I've got a master's in finance my entire life. Um, I grew up through management consulting. Um, I mean, I ran a management consulting business my entire life. I have 3 million airline miles under my belt, so I know a lot about travel and bags and uh, security. I sold my consulting firm in 2010 to a public company 
and um, I always like to make things um, and, you know, kind of just invent and, you know, that was, and tinker, that was just kind of my thing out of just boredom. So that's kind of what got me going. But in starting in 2010, I actually had the, uh, you know, the, the resources to be able to do it. So that's what, you know, enabled me to kind of start to pursue it. That's interesting. So for the both of you, the idea sort of started from a very similar place. You clearly both have um, inventing backgrounds. Now, I want to talk about um, once you have the product sort of finalized, at least the first version, you both ran Kickstarter campaigns. Is that what you used to sort of validate the idea and get things rolling? Um, or was there another step in between um, before those campaigns running? Because between the two of you, you've raised millions of dollars on the platforms. And I guess we can start with uh, with Don. Yeah, for me, that was definitely the validation, right? I mean, like, I knew I need, I wanted the thing. And I knew it was going to work for me. And my question was, you know, did anybody else care um, about the thing too? So my, you know, my goal was, I went and I sourced all the materials myself enough to make a thousand bags. And then on Kickstarter, my goal was to raise enough money for the manufacturing portion only for the thousand bags. And as far as I knew, I was going to have 999 extra bags. Like I didn't know if anybody was going to care right? Um, and, and want one. I mean, I was prepared to, you know, have a thousand bags worth of, mater- of materials um, stuck. Um, I mean, I honestly had no idea. I'd never done a Kickstarter campaign before. I had nobody, you know, with experience helping me. Uh, you know, I just read everything there was to read. And, uh, you know, I mean, I wasn't an idiot. I'd been in business my whole life. Right. I mean, so I, I figured I had as good a shot as anybody on it, but I really didn't know. And how about for you, Neil? Was the Kickstarter sort of the first piece in getting the business off the ground, or was there a step before that? I I, um, I, I definitely uh, used it as a validation to try and put the whole idea into the into the real world. Um, I think um, I had no idea really how whether it would be well received, but I I definitely kept everything quite secret. So. I, I, the way I say it to people these days is that in a month we went from absolutely unknown to um, we, we we basically made um, effectively pre-sales in 57 countries. Uh, we did a count recently as to how many countries we've shipped to, and I think it's up to something like 59. So actually not that many more than we did in that first month of Kickstarter. So you could say that it was just hugely influential to say, do, do people want this? Do they think like we think? Um, is this a good idea? Does this fix a problem that people have? I think that's fantastic about crowdfunding, but we also didn't know anything about how to do it. We had to learn, and we got loads of advice from people, which I have to say um, on that, I'd always share it because people were really, really generous with us um, when we were moving towards uh, going on Kickstarter. Um, it's brilliant. Now that that's a, that brings up an, an interesting question for for the both of you, um, what strategies or I guess tactics did you do with the with the Kickstarter campaigns that you feel like uh, warranted the most success in getting that exposure and ultimately pre-selling the most amount of, of product? And we can start with you, Neil, on that. Sure. Um, I mean, I uh, we've I tried to do everything as 
in the best possible way that I can. I treat everything I do as as being the most important thing I've ever done. And I think with the Kickstarter campaign, we I did it between, my, between myself and Will Riley, my um, sort of early seed investor, and we we just really put so much effort into it. We the imagery I think is quite important. So we created some imagery which we're still using today, and that's five years later. Um, because actually we haven't really done anything better in terms of imagery. Um, and then I think we just thought about everything that somebody might ask when they're looking at the campaign and tried to cover it in the campaign. Um, and, and like I said, we took lots of advice off people as well. So when you put all that together with a lot of effort, um, you, you hopefully end up with something good, but you have no idea whether it's going to be successful or not. For sure. And, and how about for you, Don? What, what were the, the key pieces that you would say were most successful um, in the Kickstarter? I think for us was just m- making it personal. Like my takeaway from all the research we did, everything we read, and then from actually doing it, is having it come from real people with a real story just making everything authentic and tied together and just really resonate with who you are um, down to everything you write to all your imagery to everybody you reach out to, whether it's media or influencers or bloggers or reviews to not mass email people, some form email, but really writing them something that sounds like it's coming from you that took a few minutes to write, that reflects your personality and, and who you are and why you're doing it. Um, I just think that makes all the difference in the world. I think that's the difference between a successful campaign and a not successful campaign. That's a really good point. And that's one of the main reasons we started this podcast and Ready Eddie is to help brands like yourself sort of share your genuine personalities behind the brands that you started so that people can really associate some person, people, and like feeling and ethos behind a brand and, I, and I, it's such an important piece and i feel like so many consumers these days are making that a priority in what they're buying um so let's talk about the growth over time so both of you uh both brands were started in end of 2013 early 2014 and we can start with you don what has the growth been like from then to today um a lot right i mean obviously Kickstarter was ridiculous, right? I mean, that's that's artificial growth, though, right? Because you just don't get that kind of oomph in the real world. So then we flattened out quite a bit because um, we spent all our time trying to fill those orders because who saw that coming, right? I mean, our goal was 18,000. And then between Kickstarter and Indiegogo, we did almost a million five, right? So we just didn't see that coming. So obviously we didn't do much else for the next year um, other than fill that. Then Shark Tank came along. Um, so then we spiked on that, um, which was good. Um, and then we flattened out again after Shark Tank. Um, and then we tweaked our marketing again. So then we've come into a, another growth spurt which was good, um, probably a year after Shark Tank. And then obviously, um, you know, things are flat again uh, with COVID-19. So, um, you know, it's pretty consistently, uh, we look like a staircase. 
That's healthy growth, though, and that's how a lot of businesses grow. It's not always the hockey stick that like you're that is sensationalized, right? In yeah. uh, in media. Now, yeah. Neil, what about for for Lightlock? Yeah, so um, I mean, pretty similar story. I think Kickstarter does give you a, a slightly artificial kind of growth, but what you need to do is then. Um, and I think we found that after the Kickstarter stopped, people wanted to buy from us and pre-order, even though they couldn't just get the product the next day. So we had to not scramble, it wasn't far off, get a website going and start to become proficient at all of that stuff, you know, instantaneously. Um, and that was a bit of a challenge. But since then, we've kind of been um, growing pretty steadily. I think last year we did just under 50% growth, which is, you know, away from from crowdfunding and just in in normal trailing um the current period with coronavirus is obviously a challenge but in cycling and motorcycling potentially we think there's going to be a an, an uplift on people commuting so we're getting ready at the moment our productions started again just in a very careful way um and we're we're, we're hoping that we can support people's way of um of getting back and forth to to work um and securing their their vehicles so um there's there's always a challenge obviously we we have raised investment as well so you know investors expect your business to grow we've got very supportive investors and uh, and they're trying to help us so um you know it's 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 an exciting journey but um uh, it's definitely something that people it's a regular word the g word um you know how's growth looking sure that's interesting. Now, this leads me to another uh, question I have is specifically around manufacturing. And I guess there's kind of a two part question here is piece number one, uh, up until COVID-19, what were some of the trials and tribulations you guys had with manufacturing and sort of getting everything set up so it's running smoothly? And how has COVID sort of affected that um, for your business? And we, we can start with you, Neil. Yeah, so um, I mean, we we do manufacture in the UK, so we do have parts coming from other places. But as much as we can, all of the clever stuff and know-how and assembly and care, and we've got you know checks and quality and so on, all happens in 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 Wales in the UK. Um, so as soon as we had to lock down, we couldn't really carry on doing that stuff. Uh, we've, we, it's amazing actually what's happened because I've, we've got everybody, most people anyway, working from home. And at the moment you can still order a light lock, still get the same kind of next day delivery or a couple of days delivery. And the fact is it's being fulfilled out of a pretty complex, um, arrangement of people's houses and moving things around and whatever, uh, in a very safe way. So We've managed to keep going, but the raw manufacturing is hard because uh, because you can't do all of it. Um, so we've had a very careful kind of stock control and watching, you know, watching parts and stocks, uh, which is the sort of um, you know the realities of of running a manufacturing business as well as a marketing and distribution business. Um, but um, I, I think we've actually kind of could come out stronger from it because. We've worked out how to, you know, what are the critical parts of the business and what can we do in adversity. Um, and, and, you know, in a perverse way, there's, it's sort of quite satisfying to see it still going and, and, and producing products and sending them to people. That's really fascinating. It's, it's kind of interesting when you go through um, a once-in-a-lifetime experience like COVID 
um, just even just obviously personally and then even on the business side, you it forces you to look at your business through a different light and you make different improvements and learn different lessons that, like you said, when you come out of it, you're almost stronger as a result of it. I know this has happened with us with Ready Eddie, um, but it's definitely so, so interesting, um, the learnings that you can get from it. And Don, I'd love to hear sort of your perspective on this. Yeah, for us, um, so we were we're very tightly integrated with our manufacturers in China. Um, I took on an equity partner right after Kickstarter. Initially, we were manufacturing in the U.S., um, but they couldn't. They could in no way scale um, to the level that we needed to after the Kickstarter campaign. They didn't even want to try. So I needed to find, and I couldn't find any manufacturers in the U.S. that wanted to take it on just because our materials were so difficult to work with, um, you know, being that the, the high cut resistance levels of our products. So we had to take it overseas. Um, I had no experience with overseas manufacturing. So I took on an equity partner that actually had 11 factories overseas. So we were very, very tightly integrated. In fact, I had an op- office in China with people there um, at the factories. So it was super easy for me to keep control um, and to manage quality, which was really nice day one um, of taking on the partners. So that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Obviously, when COVID-19 hit and it hit there first, um, you know, it was complete shutdown, right? So, um, you know, every, everything came to a stop. Um, the good news is that they were back up and running, um, you know, a lot sooner than we are. So, you know, they're, they're back in full production again and, uh, and they're working. So, um, you know, uh, other than a, uh, a long blip and it was a long blip because if you think about the timing, right, they shut down a month for Chinese new year and, um, pretty much right when they were getting ready to come back up after Chinese new year, they shut down for COVID. So it, it was a pretty long shutdown for us. That's interesting. Now, I want to ask a follow-up question. How did you find your partner um, in manufacturing? Did you? What was the vetting process like there? Well, for, for me, um, so I live in a town called New Albany, Ohio, which nobody ever would have heard of. But we are actually the retail epicenter of the Midwest of the United States. In other words, headquartered in my little... Ohio town is limited, limited brands, Victoria's Secrets, Bath and Body Works, Asina Brands, which is like Justice, Lane Bryant, um, Abercrombie and Fitch. So all these brands, these national brands that everybody knows are all headquartered here. With that, we have all the executives, all the employees, and all the businesses that outsource and provide various ancillary functions to all these businesses. Right. So whether it's fulfillment, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's kitting, packaging. So. It's a huge amount of resources available to me. Right. For all these. So just with networking um, from, you know, people who know people who know people, you can pretty much find anybody related to any aspect of, uh, you know, a retail uh, supply chain just by uh, kind of working who knows who. 
That's pretty awesome. It shows the power of that network um, being able to do things otherwise mostly impossible. Because I've spoke to so many founders who have had issues where they do a partnership like that, like yours, an equity partnership for manufacturing, and it's just turned into a disaster because they overpromised, said they could do X, Y, and Z, and then just couldn't, and then it was just a whole kerfuffle, and it just sounds like a uh, huge with, headache. <laughs> with me, it was the best thing I ever did. And one of the things that really kind of did it for me, besides manufacturing, you know, I thought my kids were going to like stuff you know, the Kickstarter, you know, boxes and put labels on them and do the shipping for me. So one day a semi shows up in front of my house and unloads seven pallets of flattened boxes. And I'm just looking at this going, <laughs> holy crap, what have I done? Right. And it's like, right. there's just, there's just no way. Right. And, you know, the same partner, you know, had 265,000 square feet of warehousing and fulfillment and docks and you know he had everything i needed right i mean there it was it was it was a no-brainer and then you know turned out just to be a great guy you know high integrity it just everything about it made sense right i mean it was just the right thing to do then there was a couple different people right th that you could have provided those same services for me so you know i put together my pitch deck and you know made appointments and you know had to i had to sell my concept right it wasn't like you know everybody's you know jumping on the opportunity to you know, jump in bed with some dude they never heard of with some bag that, you know, like out of nowhere. So, you know, it was it was a sales pitch. And, you know, luckily it worked out for all of us. That's really interesting. Now, I, I want. I, yeah, go on. Sorry. Sorry, Josh. I've got a, a good one there for, um, for just finding partners. Obviously, we have various suppliers in our supply chain, um, but you, you can't underestimate luck as well. You know, you're talking about networking. Um, with a, when we developed our composite material, which is the flexible part of our bike locks, um, I showed something to Continental in Germany, and they said, well, we can make that. And it was just a completely accidental meeting. And the next thing, a bit like Don's uh, story of his boxes, I've got five miles of bike lock arriving in Wales. Oh, my. <laughs> which, <laughs> like, absolutely, which weighs about five tonnes. Um, uh, you know, absolutely mind-blowing when you start when you go from secret to that is kind of amazing yeah that's crazy i i that i couldn't even imagine like because our business we're, we're all digital so we don't deal with any of the manufacturing pieces of it so whenever i talk to brands that have this big manufacturing component i'm always like Ooh, the logistics of it alone and then quality control and the relationship it's a, it's a very complicated piece of a business um that can really make or break you because <laughs> there's a lot of financial commitment um in execution quality them. control is is the thing that can break you like when something shows up and the quality is subpar but it's within what you asked for you own it it's your fault in other <laughs> words if you didn't say that it can't be that way it's your problem and you own it and, and that's that's you know, if you manufacture something, you make a product and you're a young business, that's what could ruin you because you could end up with, you know, three tons of something that you basically have to eat. You know, you can't use it in your product, right? It doesn't meet your standard. The manufacturer delivered to you what you asked for, but it's not what you wanted. 
right? Horrible. It happens all the time. It's it, it, it's happened to even brands like Patagonia in their early stages. They almost went under because they had a huge manufacturing run where they sunk like ninety percent of their capital into a manufacturing run, and it all came back wrong. And they were just like, "Oh no!" <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, no. it's, it's happened to me so many times. I've gotten something; it's the wrong color or fabric that you can see through, or just different things, and it's like. I can't use this. I can't do anything with it. Right. So how how do you minimize that? I guess in in when creating a new product, how do you be as detailed as possible so that when you do place that large order, you're not nervously awaiting it to see you, something messed up? <laughs> you buy nothing. At least my advice is you buy nothing until you have a sample in your hand that is exactly like what you're going to get that production run to look like. I mean, I, I leave nothing to, oh yeah, but the one you actually, what you get will look more like blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't do that. I mean, That's you smart. just can't. I mean, yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with that really. Um, it, definitely. You, it, those mistakes are too expensive and, and you just, as a small business, you can't really afford to do those. So yeah, I mean, you, you, you might have to spend $2,000 to get a, a, you know, a six inch swatch of something. Do it. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah I think. do you have something else to add neil no sorry i was just saying you're right <laughs> <laughs> perfect <laughs> it's interesting and, and these are things you don't really think about especially in the early stages of starting a business that you could make that mistake especially because you're wearing so many hats you're moving a million miles an hour right where yeah, just I mean, sort of like so, so if, yeah if neil got five miles of something subpar right he either has to a lose his ass and go out of business or release a product that he's not happy with. And the whole world is going to go, well, light locks, not really that good. I mean, like, which is it? You know, mm. I mean, you got to get it right. Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. Now let's talk about sustainability since you both run manufacturing businesses and we can start with you, Neil, how do you keep uh, sustainability sort of front and center, especially running um, an outdoor uh, brand specifically okay so w we obviously do strive to to be socially and environmentally responsible and aware as much as we can it's really really important to me i've run um, a, a design and innovation um, consultancy for for most of my adult life and i've always had the sort of mantra um i call it responsible creative thinking so you're always applying that you know what's this going to do to the environment um, one of the things that I really like about Lightlock is I, I get up every day thinking I'm actually doing something that's getting people on bikes, keeping people on bikes. Um, there is a there's quite a proportion, a high percentage of people that have bikes stolen that never ride again. So whilst you know, we might not just be looking at the material side, there's there's all kinds of other elements of how you can be um, uh, sustainable. Um, so I think also if you if you make something lightweight, it saves fuel as well. If you look at the whole life cycle of a product, even shipping it around is saving money if it's lighter. Um, so, yeah, I, I, we try to look at it in everything we do. We try to make um, products that we can separate into materials at the end of their life, um, but also something that's going to last for a, a decent amount of time. And we're just genuinely trying to do our best. 
Yeah, it's interesting how time goes on, how how much you realize you can do and how difficult other things are in the whole process. Because it's not just the product, like you're saying, alone. There's even the packaging. There's the the opportunity cost, so to speak, of like what you're pre- helping prevent people from using by using your product. It's definitely interesting. Okay, so talking specifically um, with you, Don, about Loctote, how would you um, keep? How do you guys keep sustainability sort of front and center with your business? Well, I mean, the the primary thing we do, it's you know, for sustainability, it's in our products, right? We we're trying to keep things out of landfills. So, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, we design and craft our bags to outlive their owners, right? That's fundamental in our DNA, right? I mean, we just we don't believe in overconsumption. We don't believe in fast fashion. We don't believe in cost cutting. Um, you know, everything we do, all of our decisions, you know, regarding product development and R and D. I mean, of course, they're always focused on improving our products theft resistant, uh, theft resistance, but. Um, you know, it's all about construction quality and, uh, you know, quality of our materials to extend the life of our products. So these things stick around. You know, we don't ever want to see a Loctote bag laying in a landfill. Um, you know, and then from a packaging standpoint, I mean, we, we already use recycled cardboard for our packaging. Um, we use a nylon lining in our bags right now, and we're currently researching using an upcycled nylon to replace the lining in our bags. So, um and then in transportation, um, right now we use, um, you know, we ship everything by boat, um, which you might not have known this, but maritime shipping is actually the world's most carbon efficient form of transporting goods. So, um, you know, we're we're doing everything we can where we can do anything. And, uh, you know, lastly, right now in production, we're just trying to diversify our global footprint just to get our manufacturing in more places to reduce our transportation, you know, altogether, right? The less we have to move product, um, the smaller our footprint is. It's interesting. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and that's the inherent thing of running a business, right? And, and the fundamental piece of it is you are expending energy in some capacity, right? So it's just trying to figure out a way to do it in the least effective or least harmful way. Um, which is interesting, and I feel like a lot of businesses are definitely becoming more aware. Um, now, I want to pivot to talk about um, sort of the future of both Loctote and Lightlock. What's what's in store for the next year, five years, ten years down the road for for each of your businesses? And we can start with Don on this one. Well, we have a Kickstarter coming up. Um, still trying to figure out the date. We've got a whole bunch of new products um, coming that will be launched in a single Kickstarter. So we're taking a lot of our technologies that uh, we've perfected and a lot of our leading edge um, textiles. So we've got some really exciting stuff coming. And, uh, you know, our goal down the road is to really become, you know, a leading lifestyle brand um, and, and, and not a fashion brand. You know, I kind of want to touch on, you know, sort of, you know, what we are and like what's in our DNA. You know, ever since we, you know, we, we launched the company, right, Loctote Industrial Bag Company, you know, I'm not a high fashion guy. I never wanted to be a fashion company. You know, we always kind of modeled it after just kind of vintage, hardcore, utilitarian, just going to last forever, you know, really useful industrial stuff. And that's kind of what we want to be known for, right? The last bag you ever need to buy, going to be there forever 
going to you know take you through everything. And that's kind of the, ba- the brand we want to build. So um, you know, that's kind of our take, right? When you think about Lockcoat, you know, it sort of wants to be in sort of the same vein you might think about maybe like Carhartt, right? Just kind of good, solid, working man thing. Anybody can carry it. Um, going to last you a long time. And uh, hopefully, you know, you'll start seeing it everywhere. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely exciting to see the journey of it, and uh, I'm excited to see how it goes in the future. And Neil, how about for for Lightlock? Yeah, so we're we're pretty focused on um, a whole pipeline of technology and new products. So obviously, the world of thefts and um, and also vehicles is changing. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of new things coming along. E-bikes are going really really strongly at the moment. Um, electric motorcycles are coming along in a big way. Uh, we want to be the premium kind of best locks um, for, for for that kind of um, transportation in the world, and um, and I think that to do that you need to be innovating and you need to be doing stuff that's new that um, other people just haven't even thought of. Uh, and so we're busy doing that. We've been raising money to do it, and we're very ambitious on what we're trying to do with the business in terms of growth, taking on some people to to drive that. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, scaling it up, um, making the technology more exciting, and then building the brand out really, really properly and globally is uh, it's a big challenge. We think there's a big opportunity there. Well, that's exciting for both your brands. Like uh, part of part of starting a business is seeing what it can grow into, and, and it seems like both Lockout um, and Lightlock have a lot of potential and are really disrupting uh, both the bike realm and the bag realm and for anyone who's listening to this podcast before may 26 you can actually enter to win product from both brands along with a ton of other gear from ready eddie brands so just head over to ready for your chance to win and with that don and neil thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share uh, both of your stories hey thanks for having us yeah it's been an absolute pleasure thank you If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Eddie Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.